Hey everyone, this is Jared of the Synautical Podcast. If you're into holistic health, philosophy, and spirituality, come check out and listen to my podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and elsewhere. Thank you for tuning in to the mental health segment of the Lifelong Health and Fitness Conversations podcast. In this episode, I speak with Lisa A. Romano, a globally recognized life coach who specializes in assisting wounded adult children to overcome the childhood emotional trauma that keeps them stuck by repeating negative, self-sabotaging patterns in their lives. Lisa is best known for her remarkable work in the area of adult children of alcoholic issues, codependency, and narcissistic abuse recovery. Lisa is also one of the most listened to meditation teachers on Insight Timer, and her YouTube channel has over 640,000 subscribers. Her podcast, Breakdown to Breakthrough, ranks in the top 100 podcasts on mental wellness. You can learn more about Lisa's online courses and her seven best-selling books by visiting lisaaromano.com. And for Lisa's full bio and links to connect with her, please see the podcast description. Now on to our conversation. So first, Lisa, I'd like to thank you for joining me on this episode. Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And would you like me to call you Miss Romano or Lisa? Oh, please call me Lisa. Okay. Well, um, I look forward to speaking about an important topic today, which is narcissistic familial relationships. Mm -hmm. um, but first, what led you to become a life coach? My life path, when my life imploded and I didn't know where to turn, life was just getting really crazy. I couldn't go to my family. I began to realize they really couldn't help me. They didn't have the tools or the life skills to help me. And I went to a psychologist as a last resort, which was seen as a no-no in my family because it meant you were weak. But I had three little kids to take care of, and I decided to go anyway, despite what they thought about it. And he diagnosed me with codependency. And as I stuck with understanding codependency and understood my, my, my play in it, how I was contributing to the toxic dynamics in my life, I eventually learned about narcissism and began to see the many layers of narcissism in my own family. And that's when, as crazy as, as it was, things started to make sense. So I decided to teach people what I was learning about codependency because I wasn't getting what I wanted from meetings they're not for everybody. Okay. Um, I wasn't getting what I wanted, even sometimes out of therapy, I was getting information, but I wasn't getting the life skills. And so as I taught myself how to heal from codependency, that's when I decided that I would like to do this professionally and, and help other people learn what helped save my life. Where did you develop your codependency? I developed my, I, I think I was born into a codependent family. So my, both my parents are adult children of alcoholics. Oh, okay. so, yeah. So mom was highly codependent. My dad was highly narcissistic. Although my mom had narcissistic traits as well, I would call her more of a codependent. And she was very heavily invested in my father's emotions. And that was her priority was keeping him calm, keeping him happy and seeking his approval. It was really something to grow up watching how my mother absolutely just adored my dad and not in a healthy way 
because she was stuffing her emotions. She was sacrificing herself just to make him happy. And so observing that as a little girl, and then also reeling from verbal abuse and emotional abuse and neglect and learning that in order to have any sense of attachment to my mother whatsoever, I couldn't have a self. I couldn't have needs. I had to be completely focused on her, which as I gained objectivity, I began to realize that how my mother had mirrored her love for my father was essentially how I learned to love her, just to sacrifice okay. myself. And that led to being a codependent teenager and being obsessed with boys and then getting engaged at 21 and just following the pattern and thinking that if I just love somebody, everything's going to be great. And if they have a need, I'll just jump in and fix it. And then mm -hmm. after 11 or 12 years of that type of sacrificing and stuffing your emotions, I just imploded. I, I was near death. I developed asthma, migraine headaches, and it was during a severe asthma attack. And I didn't even know how sick I was, which is common for trauma. It's common for trauma survivors because you're so used to neglecting yourself. Uh -huh. That analogist said to me that if I fell asleep, I'd die. He said, if you fall asleep right now, you're not waking up. You better listen to your body because your body is listening to you. And it was a profound moment because it was the first time someone said, look within, look within because I had been taught to look outside of me. Yeah. So. so you did mention that your mother wasn't as narcissistic as your father, mm -hmm. um, but if you had to mold yourself to gain acceptance from her, um, that's displaying some narcissistic uh, yep. traits, correct? Correct. However, so I think I just want to clarify that codependency and narcissism, there can be overlap. Okay. So... You know, you could love someone who is highly codependent and is self-sacrificing, sa sacrificing, and they expect you to behave a certain way because they're, they're doing so much for you. Yeah. So there definitely was some overlap with my mom. And this was not something that she showed anybody else. This was mm -hmm. doors were closed. I was her target. Absolutely. Okay. So. Regarding uh, the topic of this episode, um, narcissistic familial relationships, um, in one of your videos, you said uh, people might worry that they can be labeled narcissist. And I think especially nowadays, we're inundated with videos about narcissism. Mm -hmm. And um, also, when someone is in a situation where they're under attack by multiple people, like if they're triangulated by the narcissist, they might be accused of being a narcissist because they started fighting for their lives. So what what can you define as hallmarks of a narcissist? Well, narcissists are grandiose. They feel entitled to exploit people emotionally and they lack empathy. And these are pervasive patterns. This isn't your best friend has a bad day because her dog died or her boyfriend broke up with her. These are pervasive patterns of entitlement, exploitation, a lack of empathy, the need to be right, the consistent lack of accountability, getting angry at you because you got angry at them for violating a boundary. And again, these are, these are consistent, crazy making conversations, circular conversations to avoid accountability, triangulation, hedging their bets, making sure that in case you ever leave them, people think that you're the crazy one. Yeah. Creating flying monkeys 
and it's all happening. You don't even know what's happening, right? Like yeah. you, might, you might be having, let's say it's a sister who you think is highly narcissistic for whatever reason. And, you know, you're just having, you're having an argument with her or you're in a spat with her and you're just like, it's in you, right? Like, you're just like, wow, I can't believe this is going on between me and Mary, blah, 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 blah. But you don't know that Mary is going out of her way to like talk to your boyfriend or uh-huh. talk to your mom. And she really is hedging her bets to get out ahead of the conversation. So in case you open your mouth, you already look like the one that is crazy. And yeah. she comes off like the concerned sibling. Yeah. And this is very much true. Um, uh, I noticed, I don't want to speak on my issue too much. Mm-hmm. It's mainly for listeners, but in a personal issue where it's, it really could be years of setting someone up as a certain character type or categorizing someone a certain way. And it might not be just directed toward you. It could be multiple family members. Mm-hmm. Um, when they help a certain family member, that one's needy. And I also help this one and I help that one. And if you let them accumulate enough events of them giving you things and you accepting those things, then when they go in for a big return on that investment in you, then they already created this image of you that is so negative as this needy, dependent person that the the damage is essentially done because you did nothing to really stop it or you didn't think it was really that harmful because, well, it's a relative, you know, they, they make certain slights and we make allowances for relatives to slight us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it seems like this long-term investment in creating, um, an image. Yeah. And it, it also, I think it stems in their image of self because they're superior. So I think it's just their nature that, you know, well, if I'm superior to everyone, then there has to be a minion. There has to be someone that I enable perhaps, or in my, there has to be someone that I can play this role out with where I'm seen as the superior one, the more intelligent one, the more capable one, the more responsible one. I think it's just part of their nature. And you're right. It can, it, it can happen all outside your conscious awareness of it and on the surface appear to be very innocent. But you'll see it, you'll see it when there's an expected payback. That's when you'll see it. Like, whoa, where'd that come from? <laughs> you know? And you will regret ever taking anything from this person. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, So how common would you say familial or parental narcissism is? I think it's, I think it's fairly common. You know, I I don't know how common it is in terms of like, you know, being able to diagnose someone with someone with NPD to be able to diagnose someone, that person has to walk into a therapist's office and say, my life is unmanageable. And please help me figure out why. So the numbers in terms of statistics are pretty low. I mean, but just think about it. Narcissists don't go into therapy. You go into therapy because you're married to a narcissist or your mother's a narcissist, your dad's a narcissist, or you work with a narcissist. But, you know, in terms of statistics, I don't, I can't give you those statistics. I don't even know if those statistics exist. But what I would say is that most, I believe that undiagnosed narcissistic traits are probably at the core of many upsetting relationship dynamics, but narcissists, again, they're not self-aware. And so they're not looking at how they might be behaving in a relationship. So this trying to 
gain those statistics is nearly impossible, but I think it's far more common than a lot of people realize. Yeah. And um, as far as narcissistic parents or family authority figures, how can they affect the family unit? And when I say that, I mean, it seems to spread far and wide. Can you give some information based on like your practice or personal experience on that, on the role of an authority figure in a family and how that can really sway things? You know, I always tell everybody, it's like one narcissist in a bunch, you know, they say like one apple doesn't spoil the whole bunch, but that's not true when it comes to narcissism. And it also, again, we're talking about, when we're talking about narcissism, it depends on how it's being played out. You can have someone who is a covert narcissist who has a drug issue, who wants everybody to feel sorry for him. And let's, if this is the leader of the family, then there's always an excuse for the alcohol. There's always an excuse for not coming home. There's always an excuse for why he can't keep a job. And so mom then has to work a job, two jobs, three jobs, and the kids are left to their own devices to try to figure out how to survive. And that affects the children. Well, if dad's feeling sorry for himself and his life is so horrible and we can't hold him accountable, then we can't go to him. We can't feel protected. And then if we can't go to mom because she's so overwhelmed and she's keeping down three jobs and when she does come home, there's no food in the refrigerator and somehow she's got to go buy food. So the children are being neglected. And then we have children who model the behavior of the parents. And so in that scenario, that's far and wide that affects everybody and that affects the future grandchildren and so on. And so there's a lack of accountability for holding this person responsible. So we're not learning about boundaries. Children are marinating in this type of chaos and unpredictability. So they go into survival and they take on this various roles in the family system just to survive. And if you have an overt, I mean, domestic violence, I mean, this can go, this can go into many different directions. You know, someone who Mm -hmm. is male or female, someone who is narcissistic and um, is also domestically abusive. Well, that's tragic. People can get hurt. They can get killed. Um, and so when we're thinking about narcissism, we want to keep, keep in mind that we're talking about somebody who needs to dominate and that can show up in different ways. I can dominate you by making you feel guilty. I can dominate you by insisting that there's no way that I can take care of myself or my pain is more important than anybody else's pain. And you might feel sorry for me. And if I don't take care of myself, what point? If you're not going to leave me, then you're going to fall into taking care of me. Or I could be the type of narcissist that puffs my chest out and dominates through rage. Yeah. Would you say that uh, the narcissists who like to dominate and puff their chest enjoy situations of triangulation and aiding the other narcissist in attacking another person that they see as lesser to themselves? Oh, absolutely. The more, the better. You know, it's, it's all about domination. It's all about control. And if a narcissist can't get you to um, do what they want you to do, if they can't get you to praise them, then they'll settle for you being afraid of them. And so there, there are certain types of narcissists that actually enjoy seeing fear in your eyes and seeing terror in your eyes and enjoy other people taking on the task of dominating and, you know, controlling you as well while they sit back and they observe. Sure. 
Yeah. <laughs> in triangulation, that is uh, so evident. Um, before I started researching this, I was looking up a scenario I was going through, and I knew it inherently what was going on. I called it campaigning at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but then I found out that the official term used uh, by life coaches and psychologists is triangulation. So if you could define what triangulation is, uh, so listeners can better understand. Yeah, I like to um, define it in layman's terms, terms that we can all understand. Because so oftentimes it's like, what's that mean? We really don't understand it until someone like explains it in a way that's really simple. So triangulation is if you're dealing with a narcissist, you're dealing with somebody who's, who's essentially hedging their bets. They're worried that you might perhaps call them out, maybe leave them. They don't want to be seen as the crazy one in the situation. They want to be seen as the good one, the martyr, the person who's saving you, the person that's good. And so what they do is they set out, I'll use your word, campaign to talk to other people in a situation, could be coworkers, could be family members, whoever, could be your boyfriend, could be your sister. They set out to speak negatively about you in order to gain control over the way the relationship looks. They want to control how you see them so that you never see, see what's really going on. So it's for their benefit and it's at your cost. Yeah. It's like optics in a political campaign. Mm -hmm. That's how it felt to me, like a smear campaign. Um, yeah. Can I just add this? Sometimes the smear campaign is masqueraded, right? So it's not always an obvious smear campaign. Um, when I was going through this, my ex behind my, in front of my face would tell me how crazy I was, but behind my back, he would say things to my parents like, oh, Lisa could have been a rocket scientist. But the mm -hmm. next day he would, he would say, you should call her. She's so, sh because she sounds a little fragile and just um, threatened to take her own life, which never happened. And so, so can you see, it's a nuanced thing. It's like, yeah. they'll pick you up to your friends or your family one minute and the next minute slide in, oh, I'm really worried about them and question your mental health. And so the person who is receiving this information doesn't even realize that that they're being utilized this way. They're being used this way. It's so subtle. And then as the victim, when you start complaining, you look like the crazy one. Yeah, it's a very uh, fine line you have to walk in that situation. Um, I did want to get to one part uh, that you mentioned there. So you mentioned you grew up in a family in which you developed codependency. And I know in one of your videos, you said you experienced some trauma and you acted out, you acted out in some ways. Um, so in a situation of triangulation, when someone's trying to frame you as the crazy one, mm -hmm. it's like, God forbid, if you ever had any history when you were growing up with any mental illness, because then they bring that out and they sure. say, see, you're, you've been mental your whole life. Have you experienced that or yourself or with clients? Sure. We, I, we experience it when we're dealing with people who have grown up in toxic homes, there's no respect for one another's emotional well-being. In fact, there, it seems like it is the agenda to hurt the other person. And without respect for someone's dignity, those things do happen, especially if you grew up with a mother that bullied you or a father who bullied you, or you saw your parents bully one another. There's no respect. So yes, if 
something happens to you in your childhood, it becomes used as a weapon. It's weaponized against you, you know, with siblings. So that does happen. And in families, absolutely. In my case, I was, you know, I was naive. Uh, I didn't know what I know now. I thought that just because I would never use anything sacred that you shared with me, that certainly the person that I loved wouldn't do that either. But that's just not the case. That's that's seeing the world in a, unfortunately, it'd be nice if that were true, but unfortunately, um, that's just not the case. Well, you know what helped me through it and on the lines of what you're saying is, um, believe it or not, learning about Machiavelli, which I know this might sound bad, um, did help me through this period. I just happened to be um, reading a book about different philosophies um, throughout history. And uh, he said, deal with the world as it is, not as it ought to be. And, you know, even though Machiavelli is seen very negatively, if you, if people are treating you in such a brutal way, and it's essentially like a political campaign, and he worked in politics, so it might not be normal teaching for everyday relationships. But if someone really is trying to pull damaging tactics on you, you can look at it that way. Because unfortunately, as you said, you might say something in confidence to someone and they might not, you know, treasure it as you do, knowing that you're not supposed to share certain information or so forth. Well, it's like, I think that decent people don't want to share that information. But people who are narcissistic will take that information and sock it away to use it against you when they feel like they're losing control over you. We should be able to share information, sacred information. And I believe that decent people, empathic people who are healthier than others know not to share that information. And if they do share it, it's not to hurt you. When we're talking about somebody with high narcissistic traits, they're literally waiting for you to divulge something that they can use against you. Yes. It's a very different, different dynamic. And it is shocking and it is gut-wrenching. And I remember being completely stymied when this was happening. The things that I told my ex in confidence were now being used against me as a weapon to justify his actions or me saying that, you know, I never really got along with my mom and how painful that was to be a daughter and to feel, even though my mother was always with me, I felt like I didn't have a mom. You know, it would have made sense if she was dead. It would have made sense if she lived in another country. It didn't make sense because we lived in the same house, but I never felt like I had a mom. Mm. And to have that used against me, well, you don't get along with your mother. So why would I expect you to get along with me? And then, so here is my inner child wound. So now you've, you've hit this wound inside of me with a missile. And now I'm all screwed up mentally and emotionally, psychologically and energetically, because now I'm thinking to myself, well, is that true? Yeah. Is that, and now I can't even stick to the point of what we're trying to communicate about in today, today in our marriage. I can't, I can't even think about that anymore because I'm reeling from you hurt me. And is what you said even true? 
So forget the argument that we were having. Yeah. And one of the tactics that a narcissist would use, and I'm not an expert on this, but in my observation is because they believe they're superior, they think they could insert a thought in your head and manipulate you because they think your mind is that malleable. Would you say that's a common trait in a narcissist? I, I, I believe that it is a common trait, but I don't know how conscious that thought is in a lot of them. I think if you're a psychopath, then oh. yeah, you definitely, you're doing that on purpose and you know it like a Ted Bundy, right? Um, he knew what he was doing, but I think the, the average garden variety narcissist is just <laughs> so up, up in their head that they think that they're right, that they, this is the way they relate to the world. And so I don't know if there's, unless they're a psychopath, I don't know that there's that much thought, like I'm going to put that in their head. And they're going to believe me. Um, I think yeah. it's it's more, this is what I think. And I know I'm lying, but I don't want her to know I'm lying. And I don't want to have to say I'm sorry. So I'm just going to stick to the story. <laughs> so we did mention um, flying monkeys. Mm -hmm. So can you define what a flying monkey is? So in the way I look at a flying monkey is someone who's be, being manipulated by the narcissist, narcissist story about you and they believe it. So here they are, they're engaging with the narcissist about the story about you. And unfortunately, they might become somebody in your inner circle that's listening in on your conversations and reporting back to the narcissist. So they become part of the smear campaign. And lots of times they don't even realize that they've become part of the smear campaign. But when they do, they can be just as mean and just as nasty as the narcissist because they've bought the narcissist story about you. Yeah. And oftentimes these flying monkeys are people you, you once confided in. So they unfortunately they might already have material about the narcissist that you've already uh, discussed with them. Correct. And, and they go back, right? Yeah. So they go back to the narcissist. And I had one client, she was actually a physician who was married to a surgeon who was highly narcissistic. And he was making flying monkeys out of the girls that worked for her in her office. And he was suggesting that she was fragile. She was very depressed and really laid it on thick about her mental health, which now these girls in the office think that they have to watch their boss for signs of um, decline. And this is the way he was able to manipulate them into giving him her financial records. She's spending a lot of money. She's, you know, we don't know where her credit cards are and we don't know what she's doing with her finances anymore. And so here are these flying monkeys are believing this narcissist story. And they are actually giving him information on the victim and they're being completely used against her and she didn't even know it. So every time she had anything to say or she was frustrated, they were already, she was already being triangulated. The girls in the office assumed that was because she was on some mental decline. And they were being used as flying monkeys. They were being triangulated and they didn't even realize it. Okay. And so what would you say are ways to cope with triangulation, um, with a narcissist in your life, narcissistic uh, family members? 
Again, it's, it, it really does depend on the situation and how, you know, enmeshed everybody is. You might need some support from particular family, family members. So it might not be feasible for you to go completely no contact. So, but generally speaking, let's say that you didn't need these family members. If that's the best case scenario, you don't need them and you don't live with them. That would be beautiful, but that's not the case all the time. But in that situation where you really don't need them and you don't live with them, in my opinion, fighting them is not going to work because that just reinforces what the narcissist has conditioned them to believe. And so I use the term, it sounds silly, but you know, I, I try to create terms that help people remember what they can do in a pinch and it's shutty shutty. In other words, like you don't give them any information. You don't give them because information will be ammunition. Yeah. So if you can try to control yourself around them and, you know, go punch a pillow when no one's looking, you know, or go for a long job, but any reaction that you have around someone who is triangulating you is going to be used against you. You want to appear as, as calm as possible. You can gray rock them, which is just very mundane answers, no real information. But once you see the situation, you really have to take an inventory of the people in your life that you can no longer trust. And once you've identified them, and I've done it all wrong, that's how I figured this out, was when I saw something was happening early on in my recovery, before I really understood the dynamics, I was angry. Like, how could you go against me? What is wrong with you? And what it ended up doing was it pushed the people that I was confronting back into a corner. I was very angry. And in their head, they just turned it on me. Wow, you really are becoming unhinged. Wow, this really shouldn't bother you. And I thought, oh, okay, no matter what I say, it's being used against me. And so what I did was I just slowly backed out. Yeah. And stopped going over there for, for holidays. It was just an absolute no, 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 no. Until I got the main narcissist out of my life. And it took years before I was able to allow those people who were all part of that experience to come back into my life. And okay. they walked on thin ice. Let me tell you, they were on thin ice because I was ready to like cut them at their knees, like get out of my life all over again. I wasn't afraid anymore. Once I got the main narcissist out of my life and I got my sea legs back, I didn't need these people. Yeah. And so if you want to be a part of my life, we're going to, we're going to play nice in the sandbox. And if you're going to be passive aggressive, you're out of here. And so it took years for that, for, for like family members to be able to come back into my life. And I still hold a very strong boundary. Did the people who participated in the triangulation recognize what they had done? I would say it, it took, it was probably over seven years, eight years, nine years. One, my mother, before she passed said to me, I, I didn't see it then. And what my ex did was, like I said earlier, you know, he, what, what he did was he, while we were separated, he stopped paying the mortgage. And so the, we had, we were in fear of the house going into default. 
and he took all the credit cards away. All the so I was I had no source of income. We my kids and I were living off whatever the hell was in the cabinets. That's how angry he was that he was losing control. And we had an argument. And he left the house and he called my mother and he said, "Listen, I think you should call her because you know she's threatening to hurt herself," which never happened. This went on for quite some time. And one day my mom saw my best friend and said, oh, how's my daughter doing? Because, you know, so-and-so said that, you know, she was going to hurt herself. And my friend unleashed on my mom. And she said, how dare you? Do you believed him? And by the way, did you ever call your daughter and ask her if that was the case? And that's when my mom started to realize that she had been pulled in by him. But still, we didn't have any conversations, <clears throat> excuse me, to many years later where she said, Lisa, I just, I just didn't see it. It was many years later. Okay. So in dealing with triangulation um, and family members believing the narcissist or the person who ini initiates the triangulation tactic, why do you believe it is that they believe that person? Is it a case of the squeaky wheel gets the grease because they've been maybe squeaking for a while? Or can it be other factors such as just a person's status in the family? I think it's many factors. I think it's it really does. I mean, the, the basic uh, rules of play are, are at play with triangulation. There's an agenda. People are used as pawns to go against a victim. Uh, that those are the basic rules of play, but there can be many reasons why a flying monkey would believe someone who is engaging in triangulation. Um, the narcissist could be very convincing. The narcissist could be very deceiving, very manipulative. Their story can be seen very genuine. They can come off caring. Um, or they could be speaking to somebody who also enjoys putting someone else down and who also has high narcissistic traits. And Together, they enjoy, um, you know, the smear campaign against against the target. So I think there are many reasons why someone might believe someone who is highly narcissistic and who is trying to uh, create flying monkeys out of people. But in my case, in my personal in my personal case, and in most often case cases with my clients, the narcissist is very deceptive and comes off like they care. Um, when we're talking about a smear campaign, it's obvious to everybody that the narcissist does not care about their target. Mm -hmm. A little different. Yeah. And all those things you said, I think the interesting thing about researching this is how predictable it seems that human mm -hmm. behavior is. It's kind of sad and laughable that it's not very unique or varied in researching this topic. Um, yeah. Well, that's because we're all living below the veil of consciousness and mm -hmm. through ego defense mechanisms. And <laughs> we're, under we, we're under the illusion that we're unique. <laughs> it's all an illusion. Wow. It's, uh, I'm glad I learned it eventually. And I hope listeners are uh, taking this to heart because one thing I've noticed is um, it's a cycle and it, and it can be common with families and um, I remember a coworker, for example, speaking about a scenario with her parents as about three years ago, and then it came around to me and I just didn't really think about her scenario at the time. So we all need to be aware uh, before yeah. we walk into certain things. Well, I think what we do is I, I think if, you know, if you're on the personal development path and, you know, you, you're living a conscious life, 
and you you really try to live with integrity and you understand that it could be no other way. There is the ego. There are just so many ego defense mechanisms and any one of us can fall into an ego defense mechanism unconsciously, be triggered and not behave very well. And okay. if we can hold ourselves accountable um, and walk with integrity, that's that's half the battle right there. Because then I'm not going to be reactive or be less reactive. And I'll be able to actually acknowledge when unhealthy behaviors are happening in front of me. So I think that's important. And you mentioned humility in one of your videos. So that ties into that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I said, the one thing that has been of profound help for me is understanding the consciousness piece that all human beings are far more subconscious than conscious. They just don't know it. It's like, it's laughable how we all think we're far more conscious than we actually are. Mm -hmm. um, and as you start to investigate self-awareness and self-accountability and you learn to observe, you become the observer of the observed, right? So it's like, I'm observing how my mind is operating so here I am in the observer seat and observing what's happening in, in my mind and observing my emotions, observing my thoughts. It's very humbling because there is so much inner work that we have to do to manage our own narcissism because they're, they're, without any level of narcissism, then you, you have no sense of self. And so healthy narcissism is me saying, I know who I am. I know what my needs are. I know who I am separate from you, but it doesn't mean that level of healthy narcissism isn't, um, I don't use that against you, right? So a healthy, somebody who has healthy narcissism, narcissism can include you. They're not going to try to control you. And they accept that maybe we don't think the same way. And I don't want to dominate you just because we think differently. Even if you want to leave me or you don't want to be my friend anymore, you have that right. Whereas unhealthy narcissism, when someone doesn't behave the way I think they should, I am insulted. There's this narcissistic injury that wound gets triggered. And now I have to react to defend this wounded ego. So is and, it when it, go ahead. Is it when it turns sociopathic that it becomes unhealthy? Well, well, it, it, it doesn't even have to go that far. It could, it could be, it, it's unhealthy when, first of all, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to have highly narcissistic moments where we're upset. Someone breaks up to us. You're the worst person in the world. I did everything for you. Blah, 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 blah. How dare you hurt me this way? Right. Which is all valid, you know, and that's fine. It's, it's okay to be hurt in those moments. We're going to have those moments, but when we calm down, Hopefully we get to a point where we realize that people are free to come and go into our lives and that nobody has to agree with us about everything. And that it's not even healthy that the fact that other people don't agree with us challenges us to challenge, well, maybe I can learn something here, or maybe that person can learn something here. So it can become toxic at any point in time, it doesn't necessarily have to be sociopathic. That's an extreme end or a psychopathic, but we can be, you know, the average person can be highly toxic without being a sociopath. Okay. So 
I want to thank you again for joining me. And um, you have so much to teach. It'd be excellent if you're able to elaborate a bit more, if you have time in the future. Sure. Um, where can listeners find more information about you? Well, I'm on you. I'm on YouTube. So you can just search my name, Lisa A. Romano, the Breakthrough Life Coach. And you can go to my website at www.lisaaromano.com. I also have my own podcast called Breakdown to Breakthrough. I'm one of the most listened to meditation teachers on Insight Timer. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. You can find me just about anywhere. <laughs> you know. Well, thank you so much again for your time. And thank you for enlightening my listeners today. Oh, well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you. I'll end this episode with these final words. Many of us make allowances for family members that we would never make for others. We tolerate far more. With family, dig after dig, exaggerated or twisted story after twisted inaccurate story or blatant lie, we keep dragging them around year after year. And by doing that, you keep getting dragged down into petty squabbles and setback. Family can be far more dangerous to you and your life path than that boyfriend or partner that you dumped at the first red flag. By giving family decades of your time, you give them too much influence over your mind. And in an unhealthy family system, that time investment leaves you susceptible to poor judgment. At this point in my life, I believe people shouldn't make allowances for anyone, regardless of who they are. Social and cultural programming makes us believe and do things regarding family, but what do we actually feel? And what have you observed about your family? The behaviors discussed in this episode are common and well-studied. If you have not experienced it, either as a target or as a recruited flying monkey, you will know someone who has. And because we make exceptions for family, this toxic relationship pattern might just come around to you someday. It's a cycle and it won't stop until you recognize it and get off the hamster wheel. Take the advice of Ms. Romano and many others in her field, free yourself to pursue a full and happy life. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening and stay strong and well. 